Welcome to the Unsung Podcast. <laughs> Welcome. I was thinking I'm gonna have to pitch shift that down, Mark. That wasn't quite low. Okay, if, hang on. Scott you're sick. Walker voice. Welcome to the Unsung Podcast. That's <laughs> pretty good. Uh, I think the question that everybody wants answered this week is, Mark, would you punch a donkey in the streets of Galway? Would you punch a donkey on the streets of Galway? I would definitely not only punch a donkey in the streets of Galway, but I'd also sever my weakened gonads and then feed them to its shrunken face. <laughs> would you just uh, punch meat? <laughs> just to well, wait, till at, wait till after. Yeah, it's, it's not even nine o'clock yet, mate. It's pre-watershed. <laughs> Uh, that is a huge giveaway that uh, uh, Scott Walker will be involved in this week's episode uh, in, in some shape or form. But before we get there, this is the Unsung Podcast. Yeah, I am your host, one of your hosts, Mark Fraser. I'm joined by Zircon. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Johnny Walker and Baby Walker. <laughs> Whoa, no. <laughs> yeah, I'll be, I'll be Baby Walker. Yeah, I'll be Johnny Walker. It's, it's humming, but you know. No, are you the Radio 2 DJ or are you the blended whiskey? The stinking blended whiskey, thank you. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> not well, I'll, be, I'll be Johnny Walker, the radio DJ then. Uh, yeah, so we are members of the extended Walker Brothers and the Walker Brothers is exactly what we're going to be discussing this week as chosen by baby Johnny Walker. Mm-hmm. Uh, how have you lads been though first Before we go into the depths uh, I'm going to go for a light answer mm-hmm, uh, Please And I learned about poo steps Oh uh, yeah So um, yeah a poo step I'm not sure if that's the official name for them But yeah Basically they raise your feet up a little bit When you're uh, consecrating the evidence And um, <laughs> <laughs> officially it straightens your colon And uh, it's just a more natural way to excrete apparently yeah, because, uh, you know, millennia ago, when we were all living in caves, our ancestors all had poo steps, and mm. uh, they all had straight colons, and somehow the poo step was forgotten about. Yeah, exactly. Apart, mm-hmm. Except for the French roadside. <laughs> who, who, they didn't really have a poo step, they just had the natural squat of a hole in the ground. Mm-hmm. Hole on hole action. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Mark, you done anything as exciting as learning about poo steps? Uh, I learned to do a plank for a minute solid. <laughs> Is that the one where you like you're on your elbows, kind of, yeah, just straight? There's mm. various planks. Yeah, that is one of them. Core strength. Core strength. Next um, thing you need you to do is you need to do that atop scaffolding, uh, whilst being filmed on a GoPro. And worst case scenario, you die. But yeah, no, was that not like a viral thing about eight years ago? Plank. Yeah. Yeah, and a few folk died on like Russian buildings. <laughs> but at least, hey, look, the folk died, but their families got two hundred and fifty pound compensation yeah, from, from Harry Hill. Harry Hill, <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Beadle. How about you, Dave? Oh, I'm good, thanks. I uh, I went up north. I was in the Highlands for a week. Saw my folks for the first time since July. Gave them my, their Christmas presents. Poo steps Swam in the sea Poo poo stepped Yeah exactly Um, So it was a bloody treat And I'm just um, Yeah I wish I was still I wish I was still there To be honest I hate real life I went to a pub on Friday And I don't remember getting home (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I actually went to the pub in Allness on Thursday and um I mean I was literally gonna go for one pint and then I remembered that I was there with my pals from home and uh, got home at three in the morning and it was, felt horrendous the next day. <laughs> well, it was probably the two of the hardest weeks listening. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to digest. So I thought what we should do is two sort of sub one hour episodes to distill this man's 55 year career. <laughs> yeah. Now, we can definitely do that justice, can't we? I think if you want a deep in-depth discussion of Scott Walker from like a fan's perspective and maybe his in-depth analysis of his later work, I maybe think that we do that another time or you just go to another podcast. Um, <laughs> what I am is kind of a new fan and I'm, I am, I'm really interested in, in him as an artist and as a person, but then I'm also really interested in the record that we're doing because it has such an interesting story. Um, and it's like this weird touching, this weird touchstone and turning point for him. Um, and then, yeah, weirdly alternative music overall because so many people are influenced by him. Very much so. I think I, I can actually say to show my hand a bit that I'm an even newer fan because I had, Scott Walker is one of those peripheral acts for me where I'm like, I'm aware of him, but I haven't taken the time to really investigate it. I'm aware that a lot of people whose opinions I really value, really like him and really rate him and think he's really significant. And I just, you know, who's got the fucking time these days? But this was yeah, an opportunity. Pretty, it's one of those daunting discographies and... Yeah, 55 know, years, more yeah. more than that, actually. Like, but Although, thankfully, yeah. he didn't release that many albums towards, <laughs> you know... Yeah, yeah, he, he wasn't so it, prolific yeah, for exactly. a few decades. But yeah, it was a really, really uh, illuminating dive. And, you know, sometimes this podcast, a bit like Minesweeper, you pick a square and it doesn't just clear up that square, it clears up a load of squares around it as well. And that's what Scott Walker did for me this week, because looking at everybody from David Bowie through early guys like Jonathan Melvin of Shearwater, through to bands like Daughters, their their later stuff, through to Swans, through you know, there's through some of the eighties industrial scene or the nineties at least the nineties industrial scene and noise scene. This guy is being incredibly influential. There's been a bit of give and take, I think, in some of those scenarios, but it's it's really fascinating to actually find an artist so influential that even David Bowie is like, I kind of stole this guy's stuff. Mm-hmm. That to me is is pretty profound, and so it was a when I say it was two very difficult weeks, it's because I really wanted to engage with it, and some of it's very very dark. Um, albeit, you know, Scott Walker mercifully doesn't have all that tragic of a personal story, so we don't need to, you know, go down some horrible spiral of self-destruction. He just seems like quite an intense individual, uh, and that manifests itself in his music. Um, Can I just do a little bit of due diligence and say, you know, it would be easier and probably more feasible to do a reasonable attempt at just the Walker Brothers on a podcast, but I don't think that's necessarily possible. And also, especially in the case of the record you've picked, Dave, which is Night Flights. Give it to the boys. Let them send it all up in the air. There is crouching and wailing on snow down here. 
to preempt this discussion, Night Flights was released as a 10 track record where the different band members had, had written songs. We'll get to that in detail. But also, four tracks from that that were specifically written by Scott Walker were released as a standalone EP. And therefore, this album doesn't even, this album isn't just a crossroads for him as an artist, it musically straddles the two labels, mm-hmm. Scott Walker and the Walker Brothers. So, really, whilst we could probably have tried to bite off something a little bit more manageable I, I don't think there's any point in doing that there'd be so many moments during the podcast where we'd be saying oh but that's Scott Walker and we'll talk about that another time but as well just fucking deal with it so we'll crack on because there is an awful lot to talk about um, but we should probably start with some of the basics Aye, uh, so Scott Walker is actually called Noel Scott Engel uh, was born in January 1943 um, in Hamilton Ohio um and so his dad worked in the oil industry um and they sort of moved around fairly like quite a middle class background they lived in texas and new york and uh colorado as well and um i think they eventually settled in california and he was interested in you know music and he was kind of a, a bit of a child actor and a protege in terms of you know uh, showbiz in the in the mid 50s I noticed that there's a little bit of jubilee about how that part of his life came to the fore because mm-hmm. his dad worked in the oil industry it wasn't really a big part of his life but there's talk about the fact that they think his mum encouraged slash pushed him in this direction to yeah. develop this but as you say child actor you can actually see him on really early episodes of things like Restless Gun yep. if any of any you've got an, an old da that likes western <laughs> series um, yeah and I think old Red Skeleton Hour he was on that when he was really young as well um, but Quite early on, the old Scott Engel became Scotty Engel, much more suiting of a kind of late fifties pinup kid. Yeah, they sort of pushed him as a as a teen idol, and I think it was um, Eddie Fisher, um, the TV host and producer, that like sort of really championed him as a teenager in LA, or took him into LA. And yeah, he saw some successes because he was a handsome lad and he had a great voice. But yeah, funnily enough. Even back then in his teens, he seemed to stand out from the crowd a little bit. He was a self-confessed continental suit-wearing natural enemy of the Californian surfer. You know, he was uh, reading Jack Kerouac and... um, He was a beatnik. Yeah, he was a beatnik. And he was interested in, you know, progressive jazz and um, Mm -hmm. the beat poets and all that stuff, you know, happening in the late 50s and early 60s. I'm a fan of European cinema, which pops up a few times. It, it does, yeah. So, like, by the time he was 12, I think he'd released a single, funnily enough, titled When Is a Boy a Man? <laughs> <laughs> Not 12, uh, unless it's Kevin Spacey you're asking. Uh, but he already had something like 13 singles out by 1963. And he was, yeah. he was still young then. The music is very of its time I mean it's it's so interesting when you compare Scott Walker what he sounded like at that early age with what he be, where he ended up it's yeah. astonishing the contrast but at this point it's like 
cliched American sort of teen boy pop music, you know, and even as he got slightly older, the music at that stage still sounded very 60s. I broke my own heart I thought that I was so smart You gave me a true love yeah. Very, very 60s. Not even as edgy as like the Beatles or the Stones when you were talking like really oh, yeah, like, unabashed 60s screaming girl sort of TV so he, pop. Yeah, so he, he ended up joining up with a couple of other guys Um John Mouse, not that John, not the racist John Mouse, um, <laughs> but the original John Mouse. It could have been. We don't um, know. Well, Unverified. yeah, that's true. <laughs> but he was the original John John Walker as well, because he was using, I think, a fake ID under that name to um, perform right. in clubs. And, and the, them, was it was it John's John Walker? Or, well, John Mouse's girlfriend is that right? Because they formed Judy and the Gents. Why the Yeah, Judy and the Gents um, And then I think they toured as the Surfaris I, I I always get a bit confused because in the early sixties bands and musicians are all just like it's not you're a band and you play your own stuff. There's like so many oh yeah, we just joined as the band to be their band for that tour, but it was just one of them and then anyway. Nineteen sixty four they officially became the Walker Brothers and <laughs> linked up with Gary Leeds. <laughs> But hang on, hang on, hang on. They, yeah, they did. But prior to that, I think their original drummer's name was even funnier because the original <laughs> drummer was called Tiny Rogers. <laughs> um, yeah, Gary Leeds, who'd probably never been in Leeds until uh, until he was touring the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, it but was, yeah, but it, it was, was Gary his, Leeds. It was Gary Leeds that persuaded them to tour the UK. Yeah, Gary it was Leeds his dad that, that spent the money to go over. The, he'd been playing with another band, and he'd gone on tour as like a session drummer. And and the experience in in England, he was like, "Look, it's all kicking off there. If we don't make it here, because they were struggling to get you know their heads above water here, he was like, let 'Us try it over there.' Yeah, this. and it's interesting that you know. So at that time, they were playing you know the Whiskey a Go Go and the Sunset Strip, and doing all these places, you know, and just you know playing covers. And I think I remember they were playing places that all the Hollywood stars were coming in and seeing. So you know they were getting noticed, but they were the background band. They were just a background bunch of musicians playing the hits. Um, and then yeah, I guess London at that time, you know, thanks to. Beatlemania and you know the swinging sixties, yeah, exactly, um, was the place to go. So they decided to head over to London, call themselves the Walker Brothers. Arrived in nineteen sixty-five mm-hmm. uh, and popped out a single called "Pretty Girls Everywhere." <laughs> It just underlines how painfully 60s this whole thing was yeah. at this point. Yeah, and it's like, it's like the, oh, what's the name of the, 
what were the band called that Spinal Tap were before? <laughs> you know, the totally oh, the Thamesman. Yeah, yeah, it's like totally <laughs> like that. I mean, they seem they just seem to go over. Like I've watched the documentary and I've read about them. They just seem to be, go over there and then just get a deal and become famous. <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's like how it works. Yeah. Just yeah, three I mean, Americans turn up and it's like, oh, these guys are famous now. Um, so they had uh, John Walker, John Mouse, John Walker on vocals at that point. Yeah. And I think, again, they were struggling to sort of stand out from the crowd because there were obviously a lot of people trying something really similar at the time, including people that went on to become enormous like the Rolling Stones. Uh, and for their second single, they were doing this much lower register kind of sexier number called Love Her and it, it basically John couldn't get the vocals to work so they asked Scott to give it a try that song did much better in the charts I mean I mean, Pretty Girls Everywhere apparently did okay it got a low chart pl- placing but Love Her yeah. did a lot better and they were just like Scott has the personality uh, and so they, they, they stuck with that from that, that point onwards and then as you say man it just sort of exploded because by August of 1965 they were releasing Make It Easy On Yourself and make it easy on yourself Even just saying those words, I'm sure people hear the melody, and it's a Burt Bacharach song as well, so it's like big potatoes, yeah, and that got to number one. So, I mean, they've been in the country for like less than a year, yeah. uh, having struggled to shine abroad. It's it, it really was a different fucking time, it really was. Um, and then they followed that with a single called My Ship Is Coming In, which got to number three. But things are gonna be different now. which is pretty fucking respectable even though that song's not nearly as well remembered as the others and uh, by the time they brought out that tune Sun Ain't Gonna Shine Anymore their second number one which is the one that I think most people recognise most readily. Yeah, I think that had originally been a hit for Frankie Valli, but their uh, version was actually bigger than his. Yeah, exactly. As used to happen so often back then as well. Um, At at that stage, uh, they they were describing doing shows in Belfast where the the concert lasted for one minute because the crowd went so mental and then the band were ushered out of the venue into a car and then the crowd attacked the car and tipped the car over with the band inside the car. So that is the kind of like mania that was going on around this band at this point, having just arrived really, I mean less than a year, you know, and, and I mean they had more members in their fan club than the Beatles. Yep. To, to give it some context, that's how huge Walker Brothers got. More more fan club members than the Beatles. It's wild, considering, you know, how it clearly didn't weather as well as that. But it was enormous for them. But it was because they were, yeah, they were just aimed squarely at the teen audience. Um, you know, they're on the, the front of, you know, pop hits or whatever. And, you know, touring with Lulu and 
all these things. And oh, fucking it. Do you know that in 1966 they played a show in Tooting, which is a, br- <laughs> a brilliantly and horribly English name for a place, that they were supported by Cat Stevens and Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, I know. I remember they mentioned that. And I think yeah. Jimi Hendrix was maybe like the headline act, but they were all, just all three, it was like, here's just three oh. American beds. Come and see. No, no. See, I've seen the poster for it, man. And the Walker Brothers are like, big and bold at the top but I think what happened was by the time the show came around uh, yeah, yeah. Hendrix like, was exploding and so he, he kind of yeah. got pushed up the bill but yeah it was it was massive because all three of those acts ended up being fucking enormous you know yeah, absolutely totally. enormous what a, what a time um, you know I just I had some musings just at this point around about the changeover for example from John Mouse and when when you listen to their singles the Walker Brothers singles even like you know, Sun Ain't Gonna Shine and Make It Easy On Yourself. They're much slower and more, you know, they're baritone. His voice is a very, very famous baritone and it's something we'll talk about a lot, I'm sure. But they realised very quickly in terms of like, you know, reward-based behaviour, they were getting rewarded a lot more for leaning into the sexier, sultrier, more like lovelorn, yearning pop. You know, they weren't doing like, baby, you can drive my car. They were, they were doing stuff that was much longer and allowed him to really be a bit you know, a bit melodramatic with his voice because it mm-hmm. definitely lends itself to that. And at the same time, he was keen in the background to start writing B-sides and things like that and start injecting himself into the process rather than just taking these Bacharach-esque songs that were getting sent to them. And so you had a guy who was sort of being steered to his own strength by the marketplace, but then also looking to nurture his own artistic sort of sensibilities and and abilities uh, at the same time. Um, The crazy thing is, like, just about two years after they got to the UK, they've had all these hits and then they're basically over. In 1967, all these stresses and tensions in the band, John Walker slash Mouse getting frustrated at him suddenly losing influence in the project, having getting relegated from singer and, and also not being the key pin-up in the project anymore. Uh, and then it, this led to a split. And although they kind of briefly reunited for a, a Japanese tour, which is probably just to get some cash, that, that, that was effectively the first era of them. Um, I, I just think that's a, what, what an arc that is, eh? They released four albums in that time as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, although I, I think a couple of them were like US only releases. They had like yeah. UK albums and US yeah. albums, but they had very different running orders mm. and, and track lists as well. Yeah, so Take It Easy was the first one and that came out in 65 here, but then introducing the Walker Brothers was also 65, but that was the first album in the USA. Then Portrait came out over here in 66, but then also The Sun Ain't Gonna Shine came out in 66, and that was only their second American album. Yeah. And then by the time they brought out Images, which was technically their fifth album, but only like their third in the States, they'd split. If there's any more living to live, the life that's left in me, I'm ready to give. So, like, I mean, that, that's a really wild and very different model from yes. what we're used to now, I think, as well. And I, I guess we should also uh, mention Ivor Raymond and uh, Johnny Franz, who were, you know, producer and engineer and sort of directed the band musically mm-hmm. as much as they could. And yeah, and it's they were kind of an interesting crossover because they had that sort of Beatles, Monkeys-esque image 
um, but the band what you know the music wasn't progressive really it was you know much more yeah Perry Como, you know Frank Sinatra sort of shit crooner big orchestral sort of balladiri so well, you think about sixties music the Walker Brothers fall quite nicely in that category yeah. yeah yeah and what what's interesting is like see going back to it you know it's not the sort of music I listen to and I'm like okay when I listen to this. Does this music sound like 60s music? Or, no, do you know what? This is 60s music, as in, like... Archetype. Oh, I remember hearing that in films of the time, or mm. if I see a documentary and I'll hear a song and it sounds exactly like that. Oh, oh, no, it probably was this. This was the soundtrack to the 60s for, you know, many people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, I, I saw some commentary on it in some other isolated interviews where they were saying, for people who were in the UK at the time, the crazy thing is the Walker Brothers were an American band, mm. but they were the archetypal British 60s sound for a lot of folks they they heard that and they were like because it's a sound that only broke over here before they kind of re-imported it to the states so it's, it's just, it became a weirdly associated thing with the british swing in 60s the, the walker brothers sound even though it's fucking from ohio which is about as american as you can get about as apple pie as you can get also i think with the production it's really interesting that they tried to sort of mm-hmm. replicate specter a bit yeah, um, without using Spectre himself, but that full-on Walla sound saturated thing is is quite distinct in their music, and it's something that they change quite a bit later on. Albeit production's always a big part, and mm-hmm. and Scott Walker in particular was really keen to learn production, and he was doing that in the background this whole time. Yes, I was going to say, so Scott as an actual songwriter starts to come through in the second album, right? Yeah, on Portrait, so he's got a couple of songs on there. You can even see little bits of his personality popping in straight away. You still get that. You can see he's really enamored with Jack Brell. You know, you can really see that he's, he likes darkness in his lyrics, even mm-hmm. if the music is not necessarily doing that. So Saturday's Child was the first single from that album, you know, and it does actually sound a bit different. Saturday's Child, who used to say That you could dance the world away not not too different it's not like it's not like light years different from everything else that's happening all around about it on that record but you can start to see a little bit of a kernel of that artist there yeah i mean in that moment he was infatuated with jack brell he said that that was one of the the pivotal moments in his life was when he when he suddenly heard some jack brell music Quitte pas, il faut oublier tout, peut s'oublier qui s'enfuit déjà. Jack Brell was this sort of like sort of vaguely controversial French pop superstar, uh, sort of of that era. Um, Belgian. Belgian. I can't believe you just poirot him. (laughs) Yeah, I did. Oh my goodness. You van damned him. Super, super famous, sort of quite suggestive in his lyrics and that, you know, typically French-Belgian way. <laughs> not, not, not even just suggestive, but he's, he's very 
talks about real life, you know, it talks about yeah. really grim subjects. But it was quite controversial in that yeah, sense. Very it was much so, taboo. Yeah. And I think when Scott Walker showed that he was into that, that sort of made him, it gave him a little bit of an edge, a little bit of a seedy edge. By the way, if you've ever watched Jack Brell perform, the fucking guy sweats like a, a motherfucker. It's <laughs> unbelievable that you got to see this, man. It's like it's like a sketch, like a Leslie Nielsen film. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so then we got into his solo career. Uh, and uh, I will say, to give you some context to his solo career, he got it. I mean, he, albeit he says he was the the antithesis of the hippies by being a beatnik, but he started going away and studying things like Gregorian chant uh, and and getting quite metaphysical. It's probably the best way to put it. So he had he, he had a few parallels. He does, and in, in, in that first album, there is there is that really cool. It starts with that really cool Jacques Brel song, Matilda, which is I think is great. Mama, do you see what I see? On your knees and pray for me Matilda's come back to me And then it's followed up in Montague Terrace in Blue Which is also a really good song And straight away you're like Okay, this guy's got something that's quite unique And claw the moon Yeah, and can, you know, he it. is, it's definitely still aiming a little bit, you know, at the pop audience and the teen audience and still got that Phil Spector, you know, sound and quite saccharine strings and everything. But yeah, on, as soon as you start hearing the, the first couple of songs on his first solo record, you're like, oh, there's a we- there is a weird darkness or a weird something here. And it's interesting, you know, when I first started going deep on early Scott, I was just about to pass off his, you know, first four records as, oh, they were just his four cheesy shit pop ones, and then he went weird. But no, the, the, the weirdness is here, and each each record you can mm-hmm. see it working its way in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It, it is. It is quite amusing though, given where he was heading. That he thinks like he got. He was given one of those. TV shows like a BBC sort of yeah. like what do you call them magazine show or something you know they, they used to have them where they were hosted by a singer like, yeah you know you could Dean Martin sort of style like where, where he'd introduce guests and sing numbers but he was always doing stuff that was just a little bit too unconventional for the BBC's liking and for the audience's liking he was he, he would refuse to do the hits and he'd do things like Jacques Brel those kind of those kind of tunes yeah and, and they were just expecting you know a young Tom Jones get sort of exactly. come on and shake his arse and you know yeah. get the he's flustered because it's, it's such a thing about weird existential shit exactly it's such a like establishment thing such a mainstream thing for the BBC to give you a show like that but it only lasted six episodes before they cancelled it and then they also deleted and destroyed uh, all the, the reels so it's very very hard to find any footage thank you thank you this next song is from the show Man of La Mancha it's sung by an insane idealist Don Quixote, Cervantes' aging knight who pursues the impossible dream that finally leads him to his death. To dream the impossible dream. 
Yeah, uh, they, they basically tried to exorcise it from <laughs> from the annals. <laughs> That's quite interesting, and it kind of underlines something which was which up until the eighties is a as a key defining feature of Scott Walker his earlier career, and is this this really strange tension between wanting to actually be an artist and do good artistic work, but also probably having to pay the bills, yeah. you know, because he, he does, I mean, I guess we'll talk about it in a wee second, but there's, yeah. there's a point in his career where he just gets basically told what to do by his manager for a good, for a good like, five years, mm-hmm. and it just churns out, like, complete nonsense, nonsense that's so fucking bad that you can't actually get it anywhere because it was all deleted by him. Con- contract- contractual obligation is a huge part of Scott Walker's career, and also the decisions that he made in going that direction to to satiate the, the demands that would be made of him but it's also a huge part in the decisions that he made to then deliberately react against that later on and sort of try to make up for it by being yeah. more and more outlandish and experimental so it, like, it informs both sides of his songwriting um, by the way for anyone that's interested in that BBC thing you can get a Scott Walker album called uh, Scott Sings Songs from his TV series <laughs> it's just one of those amazing titles that you'll find in Oxfam I'm sure but yeah I mean four albums I I mean I, I can't say I'm a, a huge fan of, of Scott Walker's early solo stuff I mean the, the fourth one flopped um, I mean it was all self-penned and some people have said that the fourth one flopped partly because he released it as Scott Engel again mm-hmm. I, it was an odd decision which kind of to some extent pulled pulled the rug out from under all this work that he'd been doing to get recognition in his name but I think as you were saying you can see examples of him trying to push out in more experimental directions and even that name change was maybe a tentative part of him trying to shed this husk of all this like 60s pop stuff yeah. and maybe indulge his own tendencies but it sort of backfired or it seems to some extent it backfired and as I said that album kind of bombed after some okay I mean the, the Scott Walker 3 was a number one album so the, yeah the fourth it was number was, one and like mm-hmm. although they were all self-written apart from the last three uh, Braille ones the cold bare floor watch the moon through frosted glass damn that photograph I'll have to take it down that record still got that sort of lounge sound to it mm-hmm. but I think you can start to hear the sort of dissonance and drone is starting to become a little more apparent and more of a feature. Definitely. Um, There's a lot of drone on that album. It's Raining Today Mm. is like a really beautiful song, but it does make you feel uneasy. That wonderful day we met She smiles through the smoke Louise is another standout also just a great name for a song yeah that was a good song <laughs> um, and like 30th Century Man is like you can hear him going oh maybe I could try a little bit of this weird Dylan-esque sort it sounds, of it sounds like Beck be there to see me shaking hands with Charles de Gaulle play it cool and saran wrap all you can be a 30th Century Man yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Um, and then, yeah, Scott Four. I did see, you know, somebody mention that this was his masterpiece from his early period. And what's interesting is watching the 
documentary 30th century man you know 30th that. century man this is the, by the way yeah, exactly. this is something that really fucking annoys me why is it not called 30th century man why is it called 30th century man <laughs> he's a man that lived for 30 centuries <laughs> it's just it, it's one of those tiny little details that really fucking jars on me i just <laughs> anyway um, sorry but yeah like that's the one where so many people are like you know talking about his influence on them and you've got people like Johnny Marr and Radiohead going back and listening to this. And like they seem very overwhelmed by how deep it goes and the production and mm-hmm. the songwriting and the the oddity of the lyrics. I haven't I'm like you, Chris, I haven't quite caught that yet. Um I John, Johnny Johnny Marr quite sincerely is in like in love with the early early Scott Walker stuff. Yeah, and he says that you know it was a big influence on the Smiths and like try to get that vastness of the sound, the strings and stuff. Especially like that. the last one, yeah, the last Smiths album. He said that it was a huge influence on that to try and get that that sort of gravitas, that sort of majesty, and and and, yeah. and he he really like unironically loves it. You know, he's he's and that that is really nice because I think a lot of people embrace Scott Walker as a sort of hipster figure, but it's nice to actually see somebody who. Really Really genuinely enjoys and loves that, that earlier stuff. And it could definitely be said that Scott 4 is probably an unsung record, although, you know, it's highly influential and lots of people... Yeah, it's a bold record. It's his own, it's his own writing as well, and that's a really significant change. With no husband there beside you threw it all Ring the bell if you get hungry or you fall But I I probably couldn't talk about it as well because I just haven't it just mm. it doesn't capture my imagination. I think the first song, the Seven Seal, I think that's pretty good, man. It is cool, yeah. Pursuit of meaningless miles. Why can't God touch me with a sign? Perhaps there's no one there. And it's like a reimagination of, you know, Ingmar Bergman's, you know, Swedish masterpiece. So, you know, to kick off an indie idol album with European cinema. You were talking about this, though, because he was such a beatnik and he was so infatuated with European cinema. When he moved across here, he expected he was going to be sitting having these really intellectual conversations about, you know, Ingmar Bergman and people like that. And he said he was quite disappointed because he got here and people were just talking about John Wayne. Yeah, exactly. He's like, oh, I can't wait to move to England and, you know, discuss European cinema. And then he gets over there and they're all about Lee Marvin. Yeah. He said he moved to Scandinavia and he's like, all right, at least then they'll talk about Ingmar Bergman. And he moved over there and they're like... Oh yeah, you know Clint Eastwood. <laughs> He's like, fuck <laughs> off. <laughs> um, so then, another thing we probably won't talk about too much is uh, are the lost years, uh, as yes. as as dubbed by Scott himself, which yeah. are frankly mostly shit albums of covers written to to get out of his contract and included an extended and heavy period of drinking on his part. So that includes uh, till the band comes in in 1970. Was found laying by your side A kind of desert place Where old folks dry away You gazed out That's an album, by the way, that gets a special mention by the band Pulp. I mean, Jarvis Cocker loves Scott Walker, and you can really hear that in their music, but... You worked with him as well. Yeah. Worked with him, yeah. The side B of that album is so bad. It's all covers. And Pulp went to the, the lengths of actually making fun of it in one of their tunes. Uh, the movie Gore in 72, All Day Now in 73. Stre- any Day Now, sorry. Uh, any Day Now, sorry. In 73, Stretch also in 73, and We Had It All in 74. 
any day now I will hear you say goodbye my love and you None of which Scott wanted people to hear And therefore you won't find them Because they weren't reissued And none feature any of his own songs either They're just, you know Shit, I've got to pay the bills And I've got obligations Yeah, Yeah, exactly I've got contractual obligations Yeah So all those those albums Those albums apart from Until the Band Comes Home Have been deleted, right? And to be honest I think Until the Band Comes Home Is probably the best of them That's not saying very much Because it's a bit bit wishy-washy Should we say Um but after that, uh, the Walker Brothers reform and they do two albums, No Regrets and Lines, which sound almost exactly like the stuff <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's full of covers <laughs> on his and own. country stuff. That is that is an interesting part of it because, yeah, so they, he basically, they was partly due to financial pressures and like diminishing returns in his solo career, they were forced to reunite. I'm sure the other guys were okay with that as well because they hadn't exactly gotten rich in the interim. And they came back with No Regrets in 75. I know you're leaving It's too long overdue For far too long I've had nothing new I find those two albums deeply underwhelming Like, No Regrets and Lines are so uninspiring as I, I mean lines I actually find properly fucking irritating as yeah. a sort of mm-hmm. shite 70s album the title track on that is his favourite Walker Brothers tune though but there's nobody here but me to fill my bed I wish that I had read between the lines he thinks it's the best thing they ever released um, the album didn't do well. For me, it's got so many echoes of Van Morrison. It's sort of 70s style Van Morrison. I I fucking just... It's that country thing, man. Yeah. That pop country thing. Horrible. Really not... Really not something I can I can uh, get behind, but clearly we'll, we'll skim past it. But then 78, Night Flight, they've been told uh, the record label was actually going under, wasn't it? Yeah, GTO. Yeah. GTO, mm-hmm. which GTO, by the way, yeah. GTO, uh, the home of Billy Ocean and Donna Summer, they released yeah. I, I Feel Love, one of the most world-changing electronic tracks of all fucking time. Incredible! They were they were a they were a concern. They were mainly like pop and disco, yeah sort of stuff. Um, and as a result, he ended up collaborating with Billy Ocean, who I fucking love uh, at a later date. Um, but the GTO was going for about seventy four to eighty one. So they were told, "Look, do this album. There's no pressures. Just fucking go for it." And Scott Walker said himself, he just said to the guys, "We can just do whatever the fuck we want. <laughs> yeah. So let's take you know let's take this chance and do it." And it's an extremely exciting and important part of their career. We'll come to in part two of this podcast. Um, but before we finish part one, we'll just bring you up to speed a wee bit with how Scott Walker sort of rose from the dead a bit. Because by the end of 78, I mean, Night, Night, Night Flights was pretty challenging as, as we'll go into, um, and also not exactly a massive seller. But um, 
in the it, around the late seventies, in fact, the very late seventies, I think it's actually about seventy nine. There was still sort of resi- residual interest, and in, I think one of Scott's, maybe not his managers, but one of his associates at the time, described seeing a, a contract that he was given by Virgin Records in nineteen seventy nine for yeah. twelve albums. <laughs> 12 albums and it was honestly that he, he'd worked out in terms of like money and hours how much and how long Scott Walker would have to work just to satisfy this uh, this contract and what he would get per hour and things like that it was atrocious he said it's one of the worst recording contracts he'd ever seen yeah and he said that at Scott's work rate he'd probably finish that contract when he was 200 years old <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so at the same time, though, there was a really interesting thing happening right? because the, the the post-punk movement had come along as had like this kind of new romantic movement and a lot of interesting modern sounds emerging in England. And that included bands like Echo and the Bunnymen. It included bands like The Teardrop Explodes. Scott Walker was a name that a lot of these people used to quote in, in interviews. And I don't know if it was for maybe sort of like slightly kitsch value or whatever, but they seemed to genuinely really love what this guy had done. Certainly his vocal style had laid the groundwork for what a lot of people in the 80s would do with a very dramatic, reverb-laden baritone stuff. Um, and a guy called Julian Cope, who was a frontman in the Teardrop Explodes, and also a bit of a darling in the indie press at the time, released a collection then. It was, it was called uh, Fire Escape in the Sky. Guy, the godlike genius of Scott Walker, and this collection. Uh, how many tracks was it? Um, uh, fourteen, I think. Yeah, and it got to number fourteen in the UK, I believe, and it it sort of reignited a lot of interest in Scott Walker amongst the new generation of, of listeners because it was basically a punk's cherry picked best of from mm-hmm. his solo discography. It's interesting though because, for example, Julian Cope uh, describes uh, Scott Four as. M.O.R. Slop. So, you know, it's a guy that was quite critical, but also clearly totally infatuated with the guy. Um, There's some interesting things about the way that album was put out. Uh, I think the most interesting thing is the cover, right? Because the cover is, ironically, plain grey. Okay, Mm -hmm. so it's literally just the text in grey on a grey cover. And yes, that should be the least interesting thing in the world. However, the the thinking behind that was because Julian Cope felt that Scott Walker's image was alienating and he wanted people to embrace this music on its own merits. You know, he, he didn't want people looking and seeing this MOR 60s icon with these cheesy, floppy-haired pictures and pouts. He wanted people just to hear the majesty of this music. And I think that's a bit of a masterstroke, because he's right. It's like when you see Scott Walker, if you've never really immersed yourself in him, that is what you, you see in those photos. Is like, is this like Nick Drake meets Herman's Hermits or something like that? It's some really odd. And Julian Cope got around that, and I think it really seemed to work, because... By the early 80s, there was there was a reignited passion for Scott Walker and a whole load of renewed interest. And I would suggest that we may well go into that renewed interest at length in the episode next week. Yeah, sounds good to me. Um, okay, join us here next week. We'll look at Scott's less than prolific 80s and 90s career, uh, as well as the some, some of the really far out stuff that he did later on. And we'll look in detail at Night Flights, the Walker Brothers album that Dave picked. And we'll do a wee Nexus. And what else would we do? Maybe learn about some other ways to straighten your colon. What do you think, Dave? 
Uh, yeah, no, I want to hear more about uh, a crook. No, a kinky colon. A kinky colon. <laughs> <laughs> Mark's the one to ask. He was the one that brought that to the table. Yeah. Hey, guys. See you soon.